Hey, and welcome back to Speak About the Spark, brought to you by createschool.ie. Every fortnight in this podcast, we talk to somebody from the field of creative arts, gaining an insight into their process and find out what sparks their creativity. If you'd like to get in touch with suggestions and thoughts, please find us at Create School on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube and Instagram, or email us at info createschool.ie. For links to the guests and their work or anything else mentioned in this series, go to createschool.ie forward slash spark. My name is Justin and in this week's episode I interview Peter Murphy. Peter Murphy is a, a freelance journalist for Hot Press magazine. He's a spoken word artist, he's a musician, he's a novelist. Uh, Peter talks to us about his creative process, coming unstuck, and what it's like to teach writing. He also talks about how it's important to have a morning routine and how physical exercise is great for creativity. I really enjoyed sitting down with Peter. Hope you enjoy it too. Peter Murphy, welcome. Um, Good to be here. Can you tell us a bit about yourself, who you are and... Um, I'm a mongrel creature who uh, who has lived several different uh, existences. Um, mostly I'm a writer. Uh, I've written two novels. Um, working on a book of short stories at the moment. Um, for many years I was a journalist. I started off as a drummer uh, in a band with the institution that is Mick Egan um, in the late 80s. So... I wrote, I always wrote, I was obsessed with comics when I was a kid and that was kind of my in into into reading. I came from a, a family of readers, my mother and father were, were kind of obsessive readers of books and newspapers. So I always wrote um, for school when I was, when it was basically a job of work you were given to do essays or whatever. But the, the first kind of obsessional reading was horror stories, supernatural stuff, comics, 2008, Star-Lord, sci-fi, um, genre stuff mainly. Stephen King was the first obsessive reading that I did. I read it, pretty much everything he wrote in the first half of the 80s as it came out. But um, music was always there alongside it. Um, my mother threw out the television when I was about eight. Um so the only options left were to sort of creep into the crypt of the big brother's room and and, and uh, look at these strange alien beings on the cover of the records. Um, so that that and the radio, um, Radio Luxembourg, and kind of indiscriminate listening. Um, nighttime radio, particularly at the time in the late 70s, was a sort of banana republic where anything went, whether it was Dave Fanning Show or John Peel or... Anything after dark, you could hear anything being played. Yeah. It wasn't as strictly controlled as it is now. Um, so, well, around about when I was 16, I just had this awful urge to play. I sort of taught myself the, the drums on a on a sort of hardback book, two rulers and it, my mother's sewing machine pedal, uh, and just played along to records. I was kind of self-taught. I was, I was always a mediocre drummer. I was never particularly gifted, but I liked playing the songs Do rather than the instruments. Occasionally, yeah. yeah, I have been playing a little bit recording recently. We'll come to that in a minute. But, um, but I went from that. To, then I played in bands for about nine years, uh, loads of different bands. Moved up to Dublin '91, played in about three or four bands up there. Um, band called the Tulips. Band, band called Grasshopper. We released a couple of singles. Um, and uh, but then you know the necessities of paying the rent um, a bit hard and I figured I didn't want to be a kitchen porter for the rest of my life so I just started submitting reviews to magazines and papers got a little bit of freelance work and then I started sending reviews to Hot Press and the more stuff I sent them the more they used uh, and and over the period of about a, a year a year and a half I just became one of their regular contributors so I was with them for about 15 years we're about 10 years in I started to get this itch that I, I uh, the, the fidelity to the facts of journalism and in many cases you're kind of prescribed what to write what to write about okay. we had a lot of freedom in hot press in those days you could propose you know here, look, Lydia Lunch has a record out, you know, she's fascinating, can I talk to her? And Liam Mackey, who was my editor at the time, 
was always kind of open and would say, yeah, it was sort of like one for us and one for them. They'd be like, yeah, you can have this, but um, you got to go interview some junior minister uh, in the morning. That was great in terms of like life experience. And I never went to college, so it was a a proper education. And just in terms of being a little more uh, assured of myself, in terms of the the range of people I could talk to, I took away a lot of shyness or or uh, insecurity or whatever okay. uh, through the through the lens of the job. I learned how to talk to to different yeah. kinds of people. And what kind of the, what, what, who did you interview? For it would be everyone. Like it would go everything from kind of F. W. De Klerk, the ex president of South Africa, to Lou Reed, to P. J. Harvey, to Sonic Youth, then loads of writers, mm-hmm. William Gibson, the sci-fi, the cyberpunk grandfather, James Elroy, the crime kingpin, um, and a lot of non-fiction writers. Yeah. Um, and and then a lot of media people, you know, broadcasters, uh, you know, Donald Deneen, John Kelly, yeah, all those right. guys. So it was a sort of 360-degree um, education. And you find that these these people you spoke to, they've influenced like your your maybe your approach or your output. It would, yeah. Well, it was such a privileged position to be in to yeah. actually sit in a room with people and just have a license to pick their brains. Yeah. You know, the sort of thing you'd usually get arrested for in a bar. Kind of like what I'm doing now. Yeah, exactly. I mean, <laughs> podcasting podcasting is interesting because it's very similar to what we used to do which was the long form interview yeah. you know there was a time when if somebody gave us interview time and it was under 45 minutes we'd say forget it yeah. you know you're only just uh, you're only just drinking your coffee and breaking the surface at that point yeah. um, it was interesting towards you know around about 2010 2011 you'd start to get um, these dictates handed down from the record company you know you've got 12 minutes on the phone with some guy from Pearl Jam and you'd yeah. be like what am I supposed to do with that? <laughs> it was economic, so they couldn't afford to do press tours anymore. Or they could afford it, but, you know, a lot of people couldn't afford to be going on press junkets yeah. that were extremely expensive, flying people across from the States or, or from from Spain or wherever it was. Yeah. But, um, but, yeah, it all fed back into... I mean, I still remember conversations I had with particular people. I still remember lines that certain people have said to me... Uh, you know, whether it be Vim Vendors, the film director, or Bruce Robinson, who's yeah. with Neil and I, you know, larger than life characters. Yeah. Uh, but it, it kind of, uh, and and sustained some friendships out of it as well, um, you know, without dropping names or anything, but people like James Dean Bradfield from the Manic Street Preachers, yeah. when the first book came out, you know, he, we had an interest in exchange because I picked up the phone to interview him for, uh, a journal for Play Glovers that album and he said look I don't care if you hit, hit the record but I really like your book <laughs> which is nice and you know people like Butch Vig or Shirley from Garbage well, who I, 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 w- I wouldn't be like in yeah. constant contact but we'd be yeah. we're at a strange place now where it's like I've known them for 20 years yeah. there's no kind of strangeness there wow. um, so and they're fascinating just in terms of basic kind of Work practices, you know. Did I hear you saw um, a copy of uh, one of your books in a, in a, in a film? In, uh, yeah, it was in the. It was in one of the extra DVD extras for for Nick Cave's film Twenty Thousand Days on Earth. Oh, wow, that's a great movie. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, which is an amazing movie about creativity. Yeah, it is. Yeah, um, and work practices and therapeutic stuff. Yeah. It's rare you get to see uh, somebody actually in that that process of yeah. making music in their home. Yeah. Like, you know? It was an, and it was an interesting film because a lot of the scenes were kind of staged and yeah. yet they were real at the same yeah, time. Yeah, I love that uh, part where he's he's driving and he's got different people in the back, in the back of the car, yeah. Amazing, yeah. Kylie and Blix and yeah. Bargold and Ray <laughs> Winston, like who else would know such, yeah. <laughs> such a, a realm of yeah. acquaintances. But um yeah, I was just looking at the there was there was a, a sort of extra on the DVD or something. I was watching it one day, and it was about the sort of how they kind of constructed a simulacrum of his office on a set, yeah. 
and they were looking at the set designer was talking about the things that he he picked from the actual office and wanted mm-hmm. to and there was a pile of books there and I was sort of like oh I wonder what what's on the next desk and yeah. there at the bottom of the pile was John the Revelator that's brilliant <laughs> wow that so, must have been a great a good feeling like to see that well, I knew he had it Sinead Gleeson told me that yeah. that she'd given him a copy of it a few years later and uh and she met him. Uh, she met him later on, and she and she. My name came up, and uh, she said, "Did you, did you ever read that?" And he said, "Does that begin with a storm?" And she said, "Yeah." He said, "Yeah, I started it, but I never got to finish it because Warren Ellis stole it, <laughs> and then he passed it on to Thomas Wyler, and it was basically going around yeah. the bad seeds." I don't think Nick ever read it. <laughs> so, um, all these different. Uh all these different uh, projects that you've written for like journalism, you do, uh, you write s- spoken words. Yeah. Uh, the performance pieces, is the novels. most, is, that's the most latest okay. sort of aspect of it. How long are you doing that then? About seven or eight years, oh, I'd right. say. So that's, that's really young. Well, it, 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 uh, it came, I always had an itch to do it, but I never knew like, how is this supposed to come out? I often felt kind of frustrated as a mediocre drummer, uh, <laughs> with this urge to kind of communicate to the audience, but I wasn't a songwriter yeah. uh, or a singer. So I didn't have that direct sort of conduit. Um, you know, and it would often sometimes frustrate me when the singer in the band wouldn't talk to the audience or make eye contact with them yeah, or, yeah. or actually perform. Cause I always loved it as a, as a fan and as a punter, as, in a, as a journalist, I always really respected when people performed, put on a show. Yeah. Um, certain amount of theatricality. I mean, I grew up loving Bowie and Tom Waits and Kate Bush and all these people. Yeah. Uh, so that came out of, um, shortly before the first book was published, John the Revelator, um, Akko from Enniscorthy, an old friend of mine who I'd known since we were 14 or 15, um, and had played in a couple of bands with, he had an open mic night happening in uh, the Bailey up in Enniscorthy. And um, I think for the first time I just read a passage from it and afterwards he said I can't remember which one of us said you know shall we record some of this so he just yeah. basically came around to my house where in Enniscorthy where I was at the time with a laptop and over the course of the winter we just recorded these readings from the book and he would bring them back to his lair and kind of score them set them to wow. music so we kind of made a record by yeah. by accident we had an album's worth and um, Jerry Fish at the time was doing a lot of recording of spoken word uh, for a project that he was doing based on Michael Madsen, the actor who was in Reservoir yeah. Dogs, his poetry. And Jerry had managed to get people like Willie Nelson and Iggy Pop and right. some incredible stuff. Yeah. Um, so I knew he was interested in that realm. I'd known Jerry through interviews and socially as well. So, you know, Jerry came down one day and sat in the car with me and Akko and we played the, the whole thing from start to finish. And he said, like, lads, this is, this is good enough to put it, like, I'd like to put it out. Um, so, uh, incredibly generously, he, yeah. he put it out on his, on his label. I mean, it's highly kind of, um, I really like it. It reminds me of old radio players yeah, or yeah. something. It's not a perfect record by any means, but... Uh, but there's a lot of interesting stuff on it, and and um, uh, but it's a lot less niche now than it was at the yeah, time. Totally, yeah. Um, so when we when I I wrote the second book, shall we gather at the river? Myself uh, and Akko and Paula Cox were actually scoring the re- the readings almost as they were being written. So that was a much more fully realized kind, kind of performance record. type. Uh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So the record was called The Brotherhood of the Flood and the live show just kind of expanded. Came from that. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Um, and that, uh, that kind of reached, I remember the last few gigs we did and I remember really having this feeling of like, this thing has kind of gone as far as it can in a, in a really good way in terms yeah. of using backing tapes and a slightly theatrical performance. I remember thinking, yeah, this is exactly what I had envisioned building. Um, but that came to an, to a natural end. And since then, uh, 
two years ago, I went and uh, poached your guitarist, Dan <laughs> Comerford. Uh, well, I didn't poach him, but I borrowed him. Um, and, uh, <laughs> and as you know, Dan is, is, has an incredible sort of range yeah, of yeah. styles yeah. going from sort of orthodox songwriting or collaborating, you know, great singer. Yeah. But brilliant with technology, but what um and uh and Dan had done a little bit of work for Paula Cox, so I remember seeing how adept he was with technology and kind of soundscapes and yeah. stuff beyond kind of uh songwriting. Yeah, totally. he's yeah, he's uh, good for the, he's got a really nice um just his his guitar tones and his his way of approaching playing the guitar even is is uh it's kind of very expressive, you know. Yeah, um, and intuitive. Yeah, and he loves all the little gadgets as well. Yeah, he's yeah. a total techie. Yeah, he is. Yeah. Uh, uh, much like yourself. Um, <laughs> but um, I kind of wanted a stage of first show under the name Cursed Murphy. I wanted a sort of uh, a new, a new chapter. Uh, I chose the name Cursed Murphy because uh, if you Google Peter Murphy, you'll find the old kind of goth singer from Bauhaus from the yeah. 80s. Uh, so to avoid confusion, I figured I'd better uh, invent a stage name. So Cursed Murphy was born. So since then, it's been um, on and off. Me and Dan built a, a set over six weeks uh, and put on a couple of shows. And then when I was staging these kind of multidisciplinary events, Cursed Murphy's Laboratory, in the art center and the final one um i asked uh rebecca gangness um who has like a drum crew who use kind of warlike brazilian rhythms they're they're a samba band as well but they have all these other sides yeah. to their playing um, that doesn't often get heard in the in a sort of a, a parade kind of context um so i had this track burn high bernie and burn which i always envisioned as a sort of public enemy type thing yeah. uh, uh, and I got the crew in uh, Rebecca Tamara Yasmin Gangus and Kevin Dillon and together with Dan we just rehearsed it one one piece to do with the laboratory uh, but we had a ball and they created an incredible ruckus so um, it was very thundering uh, yeah yeah and it, it kind of opened out uh, a side that I'd never been able to investigate because I'm a total sort of primitive punk rock geek yeah. as well like you know the Stooges Funhouse would be one of my favourite records so it kind of pushed it out of spoken word and allowed me to sort of almost be like a vocalist but not yeah. really a vocalist yeah. or a performer more sort of like one of my favourite records is Lou Reed's New York record and the yeah. whole thing is basically spoken yeah. it's basically storytelling caught between the twisted stars the plotted lines the faulty map that brought Columbus to New York like the register yeah. is not much beyond yeah. that yeah. um, uh, I love the Velvet Underground and stuff and Sonic Youth and so that kind of gave a scope to open it out into a bigger bigger thing so that's been the last eight years so we're yeah. making a record at the moment yeah yeah you're recording down Johnny Fox's yeah, yeah which is great I mean everybody has other stuff yeah. that they do yeah. uh um, and as do I I've got the writing and yeah. I've got other plenty of other stuff on the boil so yeah. it's not as claustrophobic as a kind of a band yeah. situation yeah. where yeah. everybody's like really intensely dependent yeah. on this one thing it's much more fluid uh, people can come and go or, yeah. or drop out I mean we've had a stable lineup, thanks be to God and it's been amazing that everybody's so into it yeah. uh, but there's a kind of security in not being too angst-ridden yeah, or uptight, yeah. you know? And, uh, you know, Dan obviously is Frankenstein Bolts and he's a brilliant songwriter himself yeah. and he's got a ton of stuff that goes on. I can do shows on my own. I did a few shows in Sweden last year that were amazing fun, trying to carry a whole show on your own with yeah. just the voice. is quite a challenge. Or we can do scaled-down versions of it for smaller rooms. So I like that kind of amorphous... Yeah. You get that totally. Yeah. And then, for, then writing for, write, writing for the spoken word thing or writing a novel. Yeah. What, what's the, the difference in your approach there? Is there, 
do you have a do you sit down set a time aside to do these things or do they kind of you know evolve with you over time or do you, do you decide right I'm going to write a novel now or I'm going to write a poem now I'm going to write a spoken word piece pretty much I mean I find you get into trouble when you don't know basically what you're doing yeah. you know without being too prescriptive sometimes stuff you know as you know stuff flies out of the ether and you don't yeah. you don't know what it is yet yeah as best while it's gestating, not to try and put it in a confirmation suit or anything. Okay, um, yeah. But um, generally, I know like they're they're different disciplines. Um, discipline being the word. When I'm writing, one of the things that journalism taught me was basically the value of a deadline, and also a certain amount of not necessarily cavalier, but not being too precious about the process. And just showing up, you know, when, when there's 1,200 words due in the morning, you just show up yeah. and you do it. You get it done because then the rent doesn't get paid. Yeah. And a certain amount of that, see, uh, uh, um, uh, C.S. Lewis once said that the muses most likely come visiting when you're sitting at your desk working. Um, and there seems to be no way around that. I generally have to show up every morning. And put in a few hours. Now, um, sometimes you might get a good day's work done in an hour, and sometimes it's like pushing a boulder up a hill. Yeah. Um, and the, the the key is knowing when to leave it. That's what I was going to ask. Did he, do you think there's a, a stage there during those few hours that you're pushing the boulder up the hill that you should just walk away from it? Sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, like how much labouring should you do? <laughs> like, how long is a piece of string? Yeah, yeah, you know. Yeah. I don't know. It's an ongoing bugbear with yeah, me. Yeah. Um, the The deal is the pact is show up anyway. Yeah. Show up for show up for work on time. Mm. You know, dressed for work. Um, get out of your dressing gown. Um, and uh, there's a great book called Big Magic by Elizabeth Gilbert. I'm not a big fan of her her other work, but this is an amazing book about about creativity uh, and she says like you dress for work as if you're going on a date yeah. because it just means like you're going on a date with the muse so show yeah. up you know believing you mean business yeah. it's a sort of um, uh, it's a sort of commitment to the work at hand I always love that about tinder sticks or the bad seeds or or, uh, uh, or Bowie yeah. you know you look at them on a rehearsal day and you know even if they're dressed casually they just look like they're serious people yeah. you know they've got a sharp edge yeah, to them. They do, yeah. they're not showing up in bermudas yeah. and a pair of flip-flops do you know what, what, the, what that book was that you're talking about uh yeah. big magic big magic yeah okay. uh and there's another book on writing by stephen king is a yeah. hugely wow. valuable book whether you're a fan of his work or not and i haven't read anything new that he's done in about 20 or 30 years but it is one of the most unpretentious practical yeah. books about writing. I'd recommend it to any artist. And yeah. there's another book called The Conversations, which is an interview book. The interviews were conducted by M Michael Ndaché, the great Canadian novelist and poet. He wrote The English Patient. And the subject of the book is Walter Murch, who's a film editor and sound designer on Apocalypse Now, The Godfather, The mm. Conversations... The English patient, yeah. Cold Mountain. He's basically a master. But that is one of the greatest books about creativity I've ever read right. because Murch is just this polymath. He's a genius who will, you know, he'll apply the principles of Italian Renaissance poetry construction to how to cut a scene. Yeah. yeah. Uh, an extremely interest, interesting for any musician because the sound design, obviously, some of the sounds that he's created are iconic. Like there's a, an amazing passage in it where he talks about the famous segue from um, from Martin Sheen in the in the hotel room and he's looking at the spinning blades of the fan overhead into the helicopters. Into the helicopters. Yeah. That was a complete accidental really? cut. He had two different scenes set up yeah. on the monitor, almost a eureka moment where he looked from one monitor with the spinning blades of the fan to the other monitor with the spinning blades of the choppers yeah. and just went, oh my God. We have to do this. Yeah. Um, so in terms, yeah, work, 
that you got to show up for work and you got to have structure. Yeah. Structure is key. Um, and a deadline is important. And a yeah. deadline. Yeah. If only, ta- if only arbitrary. Yeah. You know, you can always blow a deadline, you yeah. know. Uh, and this is one thing. I suppose we should talk about getting stuck. Yeah. Um, you can take, you can take uh, your work regime to kind of neurotic lengths. Um, and if you find that you're leaning on it as a human being, but not for the work, it can get, uh, it can get into Troji territory, it can get tedious. I showed up in the, in the library. I used to go into the library here in Wexford every morning as soon as it opened and I would stay there till four in the afternoon. Uh, and there was a period around about 2014, 2015, where I literally was kind of overloaded with ideas and did not know what I was doing. Mm. I keep starting what I thought were novels and it transpired they were not novels. Uh, and by process of elimination, I discovered I was writing a book of short stories, yeah. which I was kind of resistant to because publishers hate them and it's kind of career suicide. Yeah. But that sense of ungratefulness, I think, was a real lesson because it generated nothing, only angst uh, and counterproductivity. You think you can have too many ideas? Uh, I think you can, yeah. yeah, yeah. It's uh, almost as crippling as having no ideas at all, you know. Like my my only antidote for that is keep a big book, yeah. put the ideas in them, uh, and the ideas will stay fresh if you just put down the paragraph, whatever mm-hmm. it is, even just a general outline. But pick one and stick to it and finish it. Okay. And do you do you find that you, with these with books of ideas that you do go and revisit them when you need something to work at, or you're always working on something that's fresh in your mind? Generally, I think once the act of putting them down in the book keeps them in the head, okay. and they're generally intuitively they'll come back to you yeah. at the right time when you're ready for them. Okay. Um, I have literally written the same passage over the space of 15 years, thinking I was writing a new idea every time, only to realize I've written an identical one, <laughs> you know, a long time ago. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But um, in many ways, I think the subjects people choose are recurring obsessions in their life. They're almost, almost like riddles that, that can't be solved. And you kind of pray that you never solve them because yeah. then you'll kill it stone dead. Yeah. You know, if you do a perfect work of art, it's dead. There yeah. it is. <laughs> that idea is done. <laughs> you have a little funeral for it. Uh, but one of the things, if it gets difficult, I mean, everybody goes through periods where they're, they're, where they're dry or just bereft of ideas. And it's a weird balance. Like you shouldn't give up on work just because it's hard. Mm. But at the same time, you need to know when to stop banging your head off the wall. I mean, Einstein famously described madness as uh, repeating the same activity and expecting different results. um, And I recognize that feeling. It's a sort of fatigue, not unlike a sort of spiritual hangover. And a lot of sighing and a lot of moaning and a lot of complaining and a lot of uh, a big one big kind of clench. Um, it's the opposite of freedom. It's the opposite of being fluid. Absolutely, yeah. So I generally find during those periods, I'm not reading enough. Okay. I'm not listening to enough music. I'm not watching enough movies. Yeah. I'm not going to enough plays. You have to let the bucket fill up. That That's, yeah. I was just going to ask about, uh, is, is there, do you know why people, do you have any idea why people get stuck? But I find that myself, it's because uh, I'm not doing enough um, listening and reading and watching. Um, and eventually it does clear, you know, it comes yeah. back around. Um, and when it does, it's a, <laughs> it's a good feeling, you know. Um, oh, it's like, you know, the, the first day you get a gusher yeah. <laughs> after the, yeah, after the drought, yeah. it's like, oh, yeah. thank God, I thought I was dead. <laughs> and it's as, as well, I will let what I find with, with, with a dry spell, and sometimes dry spells can last a long time, you know, it can last months, and for me anyway. Um, sometimes years. Yeah, years, yeah. I've gotten work yeah. over a period of years Look, that's it, worth keeping, but it's yeah. not... It's not fluid. Totally, and even when I listen back to songs I've written, um, I know 
uh, the songs that I was putting out while I was going through these spells of, uh, you know, kind of being stuck, I suppose. You know? Yeah. Um, but I, I think uh, the one thing that gets me is when a dry spell does come along, I think to myself, oh no, is this it? Yeah. Was the last song I wrote that I liked, the last song I'm ever going to write, you know? Yeah. Um, so, you yeah, know, it's, it's nice to hear that, uh, yeah, it, it is only temporary thing, you know, and it is to do with, with your, with what you're doing at the time or what you're kind of, you know, I suppose putting in, you know, uh, one, I think one useful trick is to use reverse psychology on, on it and go, okay, then, uh, forget it then. Okay. I don't have to do this. You know, yeah. there's a danger in defining yourself as a musician or a yeah. writer or define yourself by any activities yeah. kind of is a bit uh dodgy because it stops you from growing you know where you're like yeah. i'm an actor i don't write yeah, you know yeah, yeah. um but if you flip it i think and you go okay say it is done okay go find something else to do yeah or or try and actively suppress it then every time you get up to you have the compulsion to go and write something say oh no stop it yeah don't do it and and eventually, I think the creative resistance to that doing nothing becomes so uh, great that it actually becomes kind of inspiring. I once asked Neil Gaiman, who's incredibly prolific, he's just like a a wellspring of stories yeah. from you know graphic novels from Sandman through to Caroline to American Gods to he never seems to question what he does. Yeah. Um, and I asked him once, you know how is that you seem incredibly um unquestioning of your own abilities and he said oh i get it the same as everyone else but he said here's what i do i have a shed or a lodge at the bottom of the garden or he did at the time i spoke to him and he said i go in there and i allow myself the option of doing nothing or writing and he said after about 20 minutes the only thing that makes writing look good is being forced to do nothing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so there, there's that aspect. Uh, but also to remove the ego from it a little bit. Mm. The act of listening to other people's music or watching their movies or reading um, is a form of connecting you to a wider wellspring of ideas. Mm. It makes you at once humbler and more nourished, I think. And um, I remember hearing Keith Richards once say that he always considers that he doesn't write the songs or the music, that there's just this universal radio out there that's yeah. broadcasting, and he's just figuring out how to tune yeah. into it, or just tuning into it without even trying. And he said, and Keith, for all his sort of, you know, father of uh, Jack Sparrow sort of dissolution, I think is is pretty wise in terms of creativity. He's a phenomenal guitar player. I'd love to hear him talk about um, particularly old blues recordings. He's very eloquent on it. But I thought that was a quite a sane and sophisticated idea that it bypasses the ego. So it's not coming out of you. Yeah, you know, yeah. therefore it's not a reflection on you. Yeah, yeah. So you can't take the credit for it, nor yeah. will you take the disgrace for it if it stinks. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it, yeah. it just re- removes you from the equation, and you just view yourself as a conduit. Just wanted to ask you as well then about technology. Do you use anything to record your um, ideas on, or is it all pen to paper kind of recording? It's kind of the fourth wall that I have to break through. Is to I know from looking at. Uh, Dan at work looking at Ian Doyle at work or um, Killian and Lorcan from Baskerville how adept they've become Um, it's long overdue that I actually become more adept with technology than I am I've always had a bit of a block about it managed to get away without having to uh, to learn the basics of it Johnny Fox is another genius with that I mean he built his own studio Um, Johnny who's sort of recording co-producing and engineering the record that we're working on at the moment. Um, our writing is kind of anti-technological by nature. Um, and I often tell students that, you know, turn off the Wi-Fi, it's kryptonite. 
uh, and you cannot be in a, the same room as the internet. It's kind of like it's kind of like you're you're lying on a bed and there's this succubus sitting on your chest, yeah. sucking the breath out of you. Yeah. Like it is extremely difficult to focus, and it's quite interesting. I think what's happened to the human brain over the last ten or fifteen years, as in the everybody talks about the reduced attention span. And, uh, now I don't think there's any return to the days of the. 600-page Victorian novel that takes eight pages to describe somebody's fireplace. Uh, but at the same time, both the act of reading and, and writing and any form of creativity requires focus and calm. Um, I always think of it as sort of like going down in a diving bell, um, an old-fashioned one where it takes like an hour to suit up yeah. And then you got to spend like 20 minutes getting lowered in. And if somebody starts pulling on the rope while you're down there, you get pulled out of it, you're going to have to start all over again. It's kind of like that. So I try and keep the keep the technology away. I, you know, I'm actually regressing in terms of technology for writing. I used to, um, I started writing on an electric typewriter, I think in the nineties, uh, and then as in terms of uh, uh, practicality, when email came in, the idea that you could email your copy into the office, yeah. you know, rather than trudging into town with a floppy disk, yeah, yeah. giving it to the typesetter. Yeah. <laughs> this is miraculous. Yeah. You know, your productivity. And then when you'd be going away on junkets and, you know, going to interview Metallica in Berlin or something, the idea that you could bring your laptop with you and yeah. transcribe the interview when you got back to the hotel, clean it up and maybe file the feature the next morning yeah. as you're waiting in the airport was uh, was unbelievable. Of course, the downside of that now is people are never off duty. Yeah. Um, so that one kind of can backfire and kind of bite and you in the butt. When when ideas come to you then, if you're, if you're just out and about in the day, do you have some way of getting them down or do you just keep that in your... Analog your, baby is the yeah, notebook, yeah. You got the notebook. It's yeah, the notebook. Yeah. Um, always paper. There's something, And there's something about the act of your own handwriting. Totally, yeah. The physical... Uh, yeah. yeah. Um, and so then when you, when you type it up, you've already gone into another draft. Yeah. And that's different. Yeah. The editing, uh, I suppose, options on software... And I, I am, I, I do use, say, my, if my phone, if something comes in, I use the, the voice recorder on my phone. You know? Yeah. Um, but I don't use the phone to type down, you know, write down lyrics and things like that. Yeah. I find the editing options are just, I'm constantly deleting the same set of words over and over, you know, trying to do everything in the first draft, I suppose, yeah. rather than once it's down on, I don't have pencils with erasers on top of them or anything like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. You know. And then later on, you get into, you're right, once you get home, then you try to write, you know, you write it out again. I think this is a really important point, actually, which is, um, I think one of the reasons, it takes me a few years to write a novel, usually, and I think it comes out of having learned to write with a word processing program. Um, It's my life's work to try and wean my way back to a handwritten first draft. What that forces you to do is write the first draft, you know, uh, the old screenwriting adage, uh, write the first draft and then learn to forgive yourself. Um, it's uh, write it in all its lumpy, warts and all, uh, flawed, you know, overwritten, underwritten glory, but get the first draft down before engaging the monkey brain. The monkey brain will basically talk you out of anything. The monkey brain is just this idiot, drooling, jeering, big brother, back of the class, smart aleck, who, you know, I always hear him in a broad Wexford accent going, who do you think you are, son? Come on. (laughs) What are you doing? You know, go and get a job. What's wrong with you? (laughs) What's wrong with you? (laughs) You and Owen Colfer once said... You know, the most devastating thing he ever heard was, well, maybe not devastating, but the most typically Wexfordian thing he ever heard was uh, walking down the main street one day and hearing a voice from a doorway going, there goes your man with his books. (laughs) 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 There's an element to that. That's the monkey voice. Um, And a lot of my, uh, when I've given classes in creative writing is, is to say, 
and this comes up in Elizabeth Gilbert's book, like he's kind of like your your father-in-law or or annoying cousin who, like you're going on holiday, right? He has to come with you. Yeah. You're going to have to figure out how to integrate him into the structure. But he or she sits in the back basically while you're driving telling you you're going too fast or too slow or you missed a turn off or whatever. Mm-hmm. And you have to turn around and go, look, buddy, you can stay in the car. Okay, you're <laughs> part of the family. I get it. You're coming with us, but you're not driving. <laughs> so, so let him have his way like on the second or third draft. Yeah. And a little bit of that voice is good. Yeah. Sometimes a lot of that voice is good. You can't be too in love with your own work. Yeah. But it has no place in the first draft. Because you can't edit and write at the same time. You'll end up with nothing. Yeah, totally agree with that. Um, yeah, Christ. The monkey brain. The monkey brain. Yeah. yeah. yeah watch out for him. I know him. I know him. He, oh. he lives in my house as well. Uh, and it's not just us. It's, yeah. you know, uh, you know, carpenters have it when they're yeah. making a table, you know. Yeah, it's that self-critic, uh, that self-doubt, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. No. Um, so... You were saying earlier on, I just have a couple more questions for you. Um, you, you were saying earlier on that you, you write in the morning time. Yeah. yeah. So you, you, you get out of your dressing gown and you show up for work. Where possible. Yeah. I what? try and write for a couple hours and then exercise and then go back in. Okay. And is, do you think even the exercising, is that... Is Crucial. That, yeah. It was a life changer for me. Yeah. yeah. I didn't exercise. I mean, I trained a bit when I was younger because yeah. I came from a boxing family and it was a local boxing club and... Um, they're not dissimilar, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, I often suggest to writing students that they think of it less like uh, like alchemy or, or, or creating a Michelangelo work of art, more like training. Yeah. Uh, but both metaphorically and actually the act of, I got back into just basic exercise, going for the odd run or, or, or cardio stuff or whatever, around about in my mid-40s. I have this personal theory that a lot of what people think is a midlife crisis is actually a drop in testosterone. Uh, for uh, men, estrogen for women, it's, uh, uh, it may affect women differently physically, but I believe psychologically we all go through the same bottleneck around about the same time. It may be to do with uh, reproductive faculties in both sexes, but... You actually lose, I think, 1% to 2% of testosterone every year from the age of 24 or 5. And it's very easily remedied. Like, it's cold showers, full-fat butter, uh, or exercise. Um, But I think a lot of people get kind of tired and a bit despairing and a bit kind of mentally and physically out of shape at that time. Um, And for me, it was a sense of kind of just getting a bit leaner mentally, a bit tougher. And the sense of this thing that you don't want to do, but you have to do it. Uh, And you know it's good for you. It's a bit like a very fishwifey voice saying, you know, I don't care if you want to do it or not. You're doing it because you're going to feel better afterwards. And almost a bit the same way in the work is like redefining pleasure is when the pain stops. (laughs) (laughs) And and so you work out in between your writing, yeah? I generally get up for a bit. I try to get up early. Yeah. Um, in the summertime, I find it easier to be up around six. Yeah. Um, I need to, I need about a, a, a 45 minutes of not talking to anybody yeah. and drinking coffee or generally just, um, you know, some people meditate at that hour or they write freehand in a journal, sort of clearing, throat clearing, morning pages, they yeah, call it in the artist's way. Yeah. Um, uh, for me, I just sort of sit around and brood for about an hour. Then I'll go and 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 take a look at what I'm working on. Might work for an hour, an hour and a half. Yeah. Get up, exercise, eat breakfast, and then go back in for another three or four hours or whatever I'm doing. As I do, if I like anything that I've ever kind of released, like um, has has been written um, early in the morning, six o'clock, kind of getting up at six. But I'm the opposite. I find it a lot easier to wake up at that time in the winter. Right. I like to sit in the dark because it's getting brighter in the summer, and I don't know when I'm when it's bright. I kind of 
I find it easier to come out of that dream state that you know that just woke up sort of state is yeah. where I like to, to write a lot of the time music, yeah. or you know um, so I think the winter for me getting up early it's harder obviously to get out of bed in the cold but um, once you're up I find it's still dark it's still I still haven't had any emails or anything text messages coming yeah. through any distractions like that and um, just the pot of coffee then sit there you know and write till it's till it's bright you know it's a kind of a holy time yeah, all right you feel yeah. like you're safe you're in exile from the world yeah. stuff hasn't started coming at you yet the first john the revelator was written very early in the morning over a period of about two or three years because the the girls my three daughters were um they were i think grace was the youngest at the time so she would have been about five or so up to up to early teenage years and uh and they were of school going age, so there was, you know, loads of stuff flying around. Yeah. Um, and I had the day job of journalism, deadlines that would not be uh, disobeyed. Yeah. So I can remember vividly, I think it was shortly after my father died, it was that first intimation of time is not elastic. You know, there's an end. Yeah. Uh, and, and I wouldn't call it a panic, but it was more the sense of I would wake up at about, four or half four going what are you doing like you're gonna write about other people for the rest of your life yeah. or or you know if if you got to do something you got to go now go now and i had this sense of urgency for a couple of years so i would get up um on a good morning i'd get up at about half four um and now some mornings i'd be typing with my nose like you know, <laughs> just passed out but uh but most days the innings were good four out of four out of six days i'd get stuff done for before they woke up mm. at about half seven or eight um so and i think that book has a sort of slightly dissociative dream state yeah. kind of thing going on with the narrator he's not really attached to the world um so th there's that liminal state where i'm sure freud and jung had had loads of stuff on this where you're kind of still co covered in amniotic goop you're just kind of yeah. You're not really real yet, and and stuff can come through. I think as 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 no doubt you've discovered that wouldn't otherwise come through. You're not really yeah. in self censorship. That's exactly yeah. You're not censoring yourself. At yeah, you're too you're too tired to do that. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Um, just last night I, I watched a, a live uh, Facebook stream of, of you performing. Yeah. Um, and uh, the piece that I, I saw you do uh, was was you kind of talking to a politician or a minister. Yeah. Right. I love the line in it about, you know, how, how am I supposed to afford an iPad so my kid can do the junior search. Yeah. You know? Um, but then I know something like uh, another piece, uh, Foxhole Prayer. Yeah. Um, what I found between those, just in those two pieces, even Foxhole Prayer, it's it, a bit of a kind of a metaphor for different, for like you list a lot of different things that are a Foxhole Prayer. Yeah. Right? Um, it could have gone for days. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but the one I heard last night, to me, didn't have a lot of things like metaphors. It was a very straight to the yeah. bone type uh, uh, piece. Do you do you think like is there a bravery in, in writing that way and being very straight to the point? Is it is it a do you know is that something that you learned over the years or is that does that come from maybe your journalism something that you can be kind of honest and straight in your face that way about a topic or is that something that you kind of think right well this piece is going to be this way you it know? took me a long time to 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 get to that place okay. uh and um it came out of i'd say and it's an ongoing process it came out of a series of concussions of um it came out of like the first one would have been my father's death. Mm -hmm. the second one would have been uh, the end of my first marriage. Then my mother um, had uh, dementia for several mm -hmm. years. Uh, then my second marriage imploded, and it seemed to. And then my brother died this year. It doesn't always have to be. I don't think it always has to be necessarily a a trauma, but I think those comets when they hit your earth. They're uh, shocking and painful, but they also bring with it some form of release. Yeah. And for me, 
I think it's just been a gradual process of not caring anymore. These events do chip away at that. Yeah. Yeah. There's no... It's chipping away at the facade that you want to present to the world. And... uh, And I found that my experience of of each successive um, kind of life event, stuff that everybody goes through or or will go through... um, I noticed how people responded was always shocked me as to how decent people were and how supportive they were and how that a lot of the inner critic that I had in my head was of my own devising and could and sometimes reaches the level of self-sabotage or whatever. And I noticed with a lot of writers, like someone like Leonard Cohen, who was the king of it, just... Uh, at a certain point just became weary of abstraction or symbolism and, and was just like, here's what I have to say. Yeah. You know, unvarnished. Mm. Here's what it is. A um, uh, friend of mine, Rob Doyle, he's a writer. He, he called it, he was talking about this, the Norwegian writer, Carl uh, of Nausgaard, who has written these incredibly kind of revealing books about his own life and Rob calls it the taking one for the team syndrome (laughs) it's like you're going to say something incredibly you know it doesn't make you look good but everybody's going to feel it and everybody's going to go oh I know what he's talking about (laughs) it's like like, so a certain aspect of like of if you're if you reach a level not saying I'm there at all but certain people like Dylan or Leonard Cohen or um, Kate Bush or whomever or uh, certain writers like Flannery O'Connor would have reached a level of not caring or going so beyond the ego that they'll take one for the team. Yeah. At its worst that becomes self-indulgent yeah. you know, soul-bearing you know, journaling. Mm. That's not art, that's that's self-indulgence. Yeah. So it's a tricky one. You have to yeah. know at what point what you have to say, your experience is universal. Yeah. And at what point you should like keep that one in the notebook. Yeah, that's, that's cool. Um, so you just mentioned students earlier on there. And I just was going to just say that you, you, we were just talking before this year. You were, um, the, uh, you were up the in right Carlo. residence in Carlo. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And you do, you do one-on-one. Yeah. Um, so how much of this, creative writing can be taught how can, how much do you think can it can it all be taught can it it's a good question um my thoughts are that like if you're not if you don't have a natural facility with ideas and language you know nobody else can give it to you they can't creative writing itself can't be taught but the act of Attending a creative writing module can give you structure. It can give you a boot camp sergeant or a or a or a therapist, whichever you prefer, <laughs> to report to. It can give you deadlines. It can make you feel less alone. Uh, it can teach you certain techniques. You can you can certainly teach technique. Um, you can't put the raw spirit into someone. Yeah. But you can maybe teach them how to shape it or or help them avoid certain pitfalls, yeah. you know. If I see somebody's going down a rabbit hole with a, a certain diversion from their work that that might be leading them to a, a bad place or leading them off track, you can kind of, you can read it and advise them and gently nudge them or at least interrogate them on what they're doing. Yeah. In some cases, you know, I've attended um, screenwriting classes I was part of a writer's group when I was writing John the Revelator, which was unbelievable, actually. It was the difference between me sitting in a attic, writing, uh, and getting bogged down over and over again, and actually having a small audience, all of whom were writers themselves, who were in the same hole as you were, who were basically kind but smart and and the kind of people who would tell you that your zipper was down. It's a, it's a supportive thing as well. Yeah. Because like, writing can be quite a lonely um, 
someone's existence you know it's, yeah it's definitely something you know the majority of the time you do it on your own you know um, yeah but i even found out with the the open mic thing i was running for a couple of years you know regardless of your experience there was a writing challenge handed out every yeah. week and everyone went in with the on the same like it, nobody went in with it well rehearsed or anything like that, regardless yeah. of your experience you know, people never wrote before were getting up in the same boat as somebody that was been writing for years yeah but, but it was always a new piece so it was never kind of known how it was going to go down yeah. you know yeah and i really enjoyed that and i got a lot of songs out of that uh, process you know and that support i suppose you know well the veteran feels maybe just even more under the yeah. under the cosh in that environment because yeah. they have no excuse for turning out you know of course they have every excuse but you know the expectations yeah. of them are higher <laughs> yeah. and everybody's first draft is a first draft yeah, and nobody it, gets exactly. away a light <laughs> exactly. but um yeah i mean like i find cues they're fun but mm. they're also good good i have certain techniques that i yeah. give people which are just basically mechanical cues yeah. you know empty out your pockets and write me a story about something you found in excellent uh um which comes from a great story called the things they carry by tim o'brien who basically describes everyone in his unit in vietnam according to the things that they put in their backpacks mm. so the guy who's a little more afraid of dying would carry more morphine uh a guy who yeah. didn't give a damn would carry comic books yeah. you know yeah. uh somebody carry an extra you know wad of weed and somebody else would carry letters from his girlfriend yeah uh so that that's an amazing kind of exercise in character building through through objects so i love giving and and i learn you know like let's be under no illusions anytime i'm giving a class i'm listening to myself speaking going physician heal thyself you know (laughs) go take some of your own voice advice buddy you know yeah. That that thing you said about three X structure, you're not really sticking to it, yeah. are you? <laughs> yeah. But even like when I go home, evenings from doing workshops with grade school, it's like, you know, why, why am I not writing at the moment? Like, why why am I not able to write this song at the moment? I was just spent the whole day writing three or four songs with other people. Yeah, you know, you, know, you need to start taking bringing those things home a little bit, and you know, take your own advice and your own you know, and try and put them into practice. I kind of like working for other people. I yeah, always like it's, commissions. It's, yeah. I mean, those, a lot of the, I've been writing a lot separately from the short stories. I've been writing separate pieces for performance or for recording. So, um, we've been on and off in the studio for a couple of months making this album and the very act of having to show up, you know, uh, having a, and, and generally what happens is like, kind of songwriting in reverse i'd go in with a with a page of words and a and a rhythm idea and i'd throw down the words first and then maybe throw down some drums or, or a loop or something mm-hmm. uh and then um dan might come along later and kind of actually supply the tonal stuff the chords yeah. he actually color in the music yeah. in between these outlines but the act of having it knowing you're gonna to have to show up on monday morning mm-hmm. with uh with these words tidied up is 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 brilliant but also i mean i was writing a, a sort of a prose poem autobiographical prose poem which i'd never done before um and i was struggling to find the structure for it it's so it's basically a life story and the thing is too bloody big and unwieldy mm. but um uh, a writer called Catherine dunn approached me uh, with this idea structured around tarot cards uh, the idea being that she would assign a story to each card to different writers. Uh, but whether it gets used in that context or not, what it gave me was uh, all of a sudden I started thinking of the span of a life through each card. Nice. Uh, so it gave me a structure to hang each piece on. Then all of a sudden the thing tidies itself up and, mm-hmm. you know, uh, and gives you an unusual structure. So like, you know, as you know, with songwriting, there's limited notes on a scale. Um, there's, uh, I think, you know, drummers are are the great unsung arrangers of the world because literally they have to grid the, or if you're programming it yourself, you have to grid what you're doing. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so by nature, it's going to put structure on it, which is not to, you know, I love uh, Barnett Coleman as much as the next guy. Yeah. <laughs> But at certain hours of the day. And uh, when when can we listen? Uh, I look forward to hearing your album. Then, the album, uh, we 
are almost finished recording, so we're going to take our time to mix it over the summer. We'll probably put out a couple of tracks yeah. first over the autumn and maybe early next year. Mm. We're looking at the album release. As you know, making the record is easy. Scheduling it, manufacturing yeah, it, all that stuff. sorting out PR. Yeah. And I was never, PR was never my strong suit in the past, but I'm kind of proud of what we're doing at the moment and I want to give it its its best shot. Yeah. Yeah. Um, now, you know, the, the music industry or the arts in general being what they are today, you have to kind of have realistic expectations. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, I wanted to, to, uh, it's been proven that when we perform in front of people, there's an audience for it. It's actually quite accessible. So I want to give it its best shot in terms of finding its own audience. So probably early next year, I would say. And then hoping to have the short stories. They're being redrafted at the moment. They're going out to first readers, which is something I'd recommend anybody. If you're not still in a writer's group, to have one or two readers whose taste you trust and depend on. That's great, yeah. Yeah, the first first listener, I'm sure you have it with demos or whatever, is like, who's the first person you play to outside the band? Um... I suppose I would I would send it to a couple of people. I send all of my music to Mick Egan. Right. Um, with folks, actually, I often let them uh, hear it, even though I I used to think that showing it to family members was a... Was, you were never going to get it, at an honest... Uh, you know, because of their, their kind of... Uh, I suppose their their biased uh, opinion of you as a person, you know. Well, but, they say there's a reason why you shouldn't learn how to drive from yeah. your family member. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I find I find that over the years they've come to know what I what I want in terms of a, of a response when I send these things. Yeah. Well, Mick Egan, obviously Dan, um, Dan is probably the first person that gets this um, because I kind of know then from Dan whether. It's maybe something he thinks he would be interested in doing within the Frankenstein Bolts uh, lineup. That that you know, could we arrange it for our band that way, or or would this be just something that I would keep for myself? And, yeah, uh, but Dan is always a good guy to to send things to. You know, I find Dan's uh, response is is actually very simple. Like, yeah. there's no judgment. Yeah. He either responds to it musically, yeah. <laughs> or he doesn't. Yeah. yeah, and generally, if he responds to it, you'll have something in three hours. Yeah. Um, otherwise it's like, uh, and he has said to me on occasion, yeah, don't think I've got happen for this. Um, but it would never be a case if I don't think this is any good or it's not for me or it's not my kind of thing. It's either the, there's an idea generated by it or not, which is kind of the same with a reader. He's yeah. uh, the gesture I always remember from the studios. He would reach for a bass, not a guitar. Yeah. He reaches for a bass. <laughs> he just plucks the bass yeah. off the wall and starts fooling around. <laughs> Next thing you know, you're recording it. So we, we have an album and a book of short stories to look forward to, yeah? That's the, that's the immediate, those are the immediate projects and they are very immediate. They're Excellent. consuming pretty much all the oxygen. And would you mind if we played a song at the end of this episode? Not a, uh, yeah, from, not from maybe your new, but maybe something from the past, if you're new. Sure. I'm, actually, I know this is not going out for another, but you were saying you won't have the album until next year so maybe something from the past. Um, we could use Foxhole Prayer. There's a couple of tracks off, off um, I still, um, off the record I do kind of you know the Revelator Orchestra kind of imploded it couldn't go on yeah. but it did kind of implode suddenly but it meant that it kind of sucked the, wind, the headwind out of that record that yeah. we made there's a lot of really there's a lot of stuff I can still listen to on that record yeah. that's about my best way of saying I'm proud of it yeah. <laughs> there's a lot of stuff I can listen to without well, flinching on it yeah um, we could include there's, yeah, there's a track called Isaac Miller that, okay. that we do live still. Brilliant. Um, that, uh, but I can send it to you. Or, or you'll find it on, I think it's on all iTunes and stuff. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, shout me when you're when you're putting the the tracks on, and I'll see what we've got. Okay. okay. Peter Murphy, thank you very much. My pleasure. <laughs> Peter Murphy there, um, great pleasure for me to sit down and talk to Peter about writing. Um, you can tell that he's always writing, thinking about writing, and he's so interested and interested in it. And uh, yeah, I just really enjoyed the afternoon. Um, check out Cursed Murphy versus The Resistance. Catch them live. They're amazing. And uh, keep an eye out for Peter's book of uh, short stories.
that's all for this week give us a shout on twitter and facebook and instagram and youtube or email us at info createschool.ie if you have any suggestions or thoughts on the series um we're gonna leave you now with a track from Carson murphy versus the resistance called foxhole prayer see you next time St. Peter, won't you hear this foxhole prayer? Six or seven beers, here comes the fear. A nightmare woke me. I was scared. I talked to God. God was not there. St. Peter, hear this foxhole prayer. Outside my door sounds like a war. They're hacking up the tarmac, shuddering the bars. Give me one more beer before the war's declared. Sweet Jesus, hear this foxhole prayer. Sweet Jesus, hear this foxhole prayer. But though I walk with ghosts, I know no fear, nor loss of heart, nor dark despair. We will endure, we'll get to this. This foxhole prayer says I exist. This foxhole prayer says I am sick of the sadness and the madness and all this apocalyptic shit. How sweet the sound that saved this wretch. How sweet the sound that saved this wretch. I swear it was a foxhole prayer. It was a foxhole Be the greatest of all foxhole prayers. He said, I can't.